There are two ways in which we can approach this question of the true identity of Jesus. We can ask who he is for us now. That will mean different things to different people, but it is a defining confession of the church that God raised Jesus from the dead, that he is alive, that he's part of our reality. But Jesus lived and died nearly 2,000 years ago in Roman-occupied Israel. So we can also ask who he was for Palestinian Jews in the first century. I think that is a much more important question for the church today than we tend to realise. It's part of our story, part of our identity as a historical community. It tells us who we are, why we are here. Now, there are a large number of Gospels in circulation in the first two or three centuries. There are perhaps 40 Gospels that we have in full or in part or know about from other writings. People were rewriting the story of Jesus for their own purposes then as they do today. Only four of these Gospels, however, made the cut and ended up in the New Testament and for good historical, literary and theological reasons, which we won't go into. Of these four, three are closely related, Matthew, Mark and Luke. They tell the story of Jesus more or less in the same way, in the same style. They are called the Synoptic Gospels because they share the same point of view. The usual assumption is that Matthew and Luke had Mark's account in front of them and added other material to it. Mark probably wrote his Gospel in Rome in the 60s, but we may imagine a large number of oral and written traditions, memories of Jesus, being passed around in the early Christian community. I think it's fair to say that the Synoptic Gospels give us the most reliable information we have about the historical Jesus, his aims, his mission, his teaching, and how he fitted into history. John's Gospel stands apart with its own peculiar style, its own distinctive, slightly trippy take on Jesus. It reads as a theological reflection on the significance of Jesus for the world from a broader and later perspective. It's just as true but it's true in a different way. There's a lot that we can say here, but perhaps the most important difference between John and the Synoptic Gospels is the way that the story is oriented. Let me explain what I mean. In the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus provides the necessary connection between the past and the future of the people of God. The nation is on a broad road leading to destruction. That's the point of the little parable about the wide gate and the narrow gate, the broad road and the narrow road in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus could see the disastrous war against Rome coming. This was the storm, the hurricane, the cyclone, the flood that would sweep away the house that Israel was building on sand. But Jesus intervenes. By his life, his mission, by his teaching, by gathering and training a group of disciples, by the example he sets, by his death and resurrection, by his commitment to be with his followers under all circumstances through to the end, he establishes an alternative narrow road for Israel, a difficult and painful road leading to the life of the age to come. So what does this Jesus do? He ensures that God's people, his people, have a future. In John's Gospel, this sense of past and future, of political crisis, of judgment and renewal, has faded into the background somewhat. Jesus is located more on a vertical axis between God and the world. He is the Word of God made flesh. He comes from above. He bears witness to what he has seen. He brings the gift of eternal life to those who believe in him. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
This Jesus says, The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. For us today, this might be enough. What we are mainly concerned about is that vertical dimension, our relationship with God through Jesus as individuals, as a worshipping community here and now. But actually, when you look at this passage in John's Gospel closely, you find that the vertical story about God and the world and the horizontal story about Jesus and Israel are not so far apart. Yes, Jesus is the bread of life who comes down from heaven, but he becomes part of Israel's story. These two axes, the horizontal and the vertical, the historical and the theological, intersect. They are overlaid. They merge. Jesus is the word of God who became flesh and dwelt in Israel, pitched his tent, tabernacled among God's people, as John puts it in chapter 1. His own people did not recognize him. His own people did not receive him. We cannot understand what John is saying about Jesus, who is the bread of life, if we do not first locate him in Israel's story, among his own people. And John gives us a very simple way of doing this. We can understand Jesus' claim to be the bread of life against the background of three meals, breakfast, lunch and dinner. Except that, unfortunately, the order is wrong. We start with lunch, then breakfast, then dinner. So first lunch and the feeding of the 5,000. Let's go back to the beginning of chapter 6. Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee and a large crowd comes to him because they've seen the signs he had performed by healing the sick. The people need feeding and Andrew finds a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish. Jesus blesses the food and it is handed out among the crowd. 5,000 people are fed and 12 baskets of leftovers are gathered. And when the people see this sign, they say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Surely this is the prophet. When the prophet Elisha came to Gilgal, he found that there was famine in the land. He's in the wilderness with a hundred sons of the prophets and they get hungry. So this is what we read in 2 Kings chapter 4. A man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God 20 loaves of barley bread baked from the first ripe grain, along with some heads of new grain. Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. How can I set this before a hundred men, his servant asked. But Elisha answered, Give it to the people to eat, for this is what the Lord says, they will eat and have some left over. Then he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over, according to the word of the Lord. The parallels are obvious, aren't they? It's not a coincidence. Jesus has reenacted, recreated Elisha's miracle, but he's amplified it. Not 20 loaves for a hundred sons of the prophets, but just five loaves for 5,000 people. And 12 baskets of bread are gathered up because this is the renewal of the 12 tribes of Israel. But what do we do with this? What's the point of it? Now, immediately after the feeding of the 100 miracle in two kings, we have the story of Naaman, who is the commander of the army of the king of Aram. And what was his problem? What was wrong with him? He was afflicted with leprosy, and he went to Elisha, hoping to be healed. Jesus mentions this story in Luke's gospel in the synagogue in Nazareth. He reads from the prophet Isaiah. He sits down. There are murmurings of approval. But then they say, is not this Joseph's son? 
Hang on, don't we know you? In response, Jesus says, Now you will quote this proverb to me, won't you? Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. And he goes on to say that they will reject him. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. And he gives the example of Naaman. There were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And this infuriates them. Are you saying that this diseased Syrian, this wretched pagan, is better than us? Jesus narrowly escapes being thrown off a cliff. So we begin this whole story, this whole argument about Jesus being the bread of life with a reference back to the controversial figure of Elisha. The people recognize the illusion. Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. He's done what a prophet does, only better. But it's not long before they are grumbling because he claims to be the bread that came down from heaven. They're not convinced. Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? It's the same question as we had in Luke's gospel. Whose father and mother we know. How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Is not this Joseph's son? Familiarity breeds contempt, as they say. We know who you are. You're no big deal. You're a fraud, an imposter. Anyway, that was lunch. When Jesus reproduces Elisha's feeding miracle on a grand scale, when he deliberately acts like one of the great Old Testament prophets, it raises the question of authenticity. I am the bread of life, he says. Really? You come here with all these great claims, but we know who you are. You're Joseph's son. Why should we believe you? Now, we can go back to breakfast. The disciples have crossed the Sea of Galilee again, back to Capernaum in a boat. Jesus has made his own way on foot, and the crowds are surprised to find him there. Rabbi, they ask, when did you get here? Seems a reasonable question, but Jesus is suspicious of their motives. Truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for the food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. They pick up on that phrase, do not work. Work for food that endures. What sort of work does this prophet have in mind? What must we do to do the works God requires? Point us in the right direction. Believe in the one whom God has sent, Jesus says. Okay, so give us a sign, another sign. Clearly they are not easily impressed. And we'll believe you. And at this point, we get another Old Testament story about bread in the wilderness. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, the people say. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. The background to this is familiar. The Israelites escaped the brutal conditions of slavery in Egypt, but as the ragged caravan of refugees travelled through the wilderness of Shur, they became hungry and thirsty. They complained to Moses, You have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. So God said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. On the sixth day they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on other days. So that's what they had for breakfast every day, every day for 40 years. It actually sounds quite nice. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. But every day for 40 years. You can see what's happening here. 
The Jews, listening to Jesus talk about the food that endures to eternal life, are trying to make sense of him according to what they know, according to the grid of Jewish belief, the stuff they hear in the synagogue every week. Okay, so let's start with this story about Moses and the manna in the wilderness, bread from heaven. Is that what you're talking about? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And here's the point. Jesus the Jew is parting company with Moses. Yes, God fed the people of Israel in the wilderness, but the manna quickly went bad. It perished, and they soon got sick of eating it. The rabble with them, it says, began to crave other food, and again the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost, also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. It's from Numbers 11. But the food that Jesus offers now to his own people, God's people, is very different. It does not perish. It does not go bad. Whoever eats it will not go hungry again. This is God's gift to his people now, when they need it most, when they are facing catastrophe. This is John's version of the fork in the road that we find in the Synoptic Gospels. You've got a people living according to the law of Moses, but they are heading for destruction. Why? Because although the law was good, in the end it could not change the human heart. In the end it could not make Israel a faithful and righteous people. It could not stop them rebelling against God. You who boast in the law, Paul wrote in Romans, dishonour God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. If you do not do the works of the law, the law can only condemn. But those who eat the bread which Jesus offers them will not be condemned. They will have the life of the age to come. So here we are. We've had lunch beside the Sea of Galilee, breakfast in the wilderness. It's beginning to sound like a whistle-stop tour of the Holy Land. And what have we learned about Jesus, who is the bread of life? Well, two things. First, he was a controversial prophet like Elisha, who brought a dangerous and disruptive message to Israel, who challenged the complacency, the exclusivism of his people, and who was deeply distrusted by his people from his hometown Nazareth all the way through to Jerusalem. Secondly, he was a Moses-like figure, one greater than Moses, who brought from God a bread which would not perish, which would not go bad, a bread which would endure to the life of the age to come. And those who ate this bread, those who believed in him, would not die. They would live forever, and he would raise them up on the last day. And here, I think, in this very Jewish argument, we have the story that disclosed his true identity. But this disclosure was beginning to drive a wedge between those who believed that Israel would be justified by keeping the law of Moses and those who were prepared to take the risk of believing in, trusting in, following Jesus at this critical moment in Israel's history. In the end, the leaders of the Jews, Israel as a nation, did not believe him. They did not trust him. They did not receive the word of God who became flesh and dwelt among them. They turned down the offer of eternal life. They came to perceive him as a threat, as the Roman governor Pilate would say at Jesus' trial, as John tells the story, your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. The Jewish council, the leaders of the people, had decided on the advice of the high priest Caiaphas that it would be good, it would be expedient if one man died for the people, 
rather than that the whole nation perished. They thought that by having Jesus killed, they would avert disaster. And they were wrong. But this brings us to the third meal, an evening meal or supper. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. This time Jesus is not looking back to ancient biblical precedents. He is looking forward to the meal that he will share with his disciples on the evening before his arrest. In fact, we have this statement instead of the account of the Last Supper that we have in the Synoptic Gospels. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. So there we are, lunch, breakfast, and a last supper. And what does Jesus claim to be the bread of life tell us about his true identity? Well, it tells us that he was a controversial prophet who confronted Israel with a difficult decision at a critical moment in its history, a fork in the road. They could follow Moses down a broad road that now only led to destruction, or they could follow Jesus down a narrow road leading to the life of the age to come. And it tells us that this was a way of suffering and death. The Son of Man must suffer many things, Jesus says to his disciples in Luke's Gospel, and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. As John relates the story, many of Jesus' disciples have trouble with this last part. This is a hard saying, they say. Who can accept it? Some of them turn back and no longer follow him. Jesus looks at the twelve at this point and asks them, are you planning to leave too? Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And then finally, what does this tell us about ourselves as a church, about our identity? We are not first century Palestinian Jews, but we are here today worshipping the living God only because the historical Jesus made available a narrow path leading to life. Only because he provided the bread from heaven which endures to the life of the age to come. Only because he suffered and died on a Roman cross and was raised to life. This story is profoundly formative for us. Everything we are, everything we have, as a community in love with the living God, stems from that event, flows from that death. Forgiveness of sins, life in the power of the Holy Spirit, the blessing of the good creator, the experience of joy in worship, strength to bear witness, the hope of vindication, and the assurance of life. <laughs>